Hola, so. So thank you all. It does encourage me. And my promise is to offer you my best. That's it. I'll offer you my best. And I hope that the best will become better over time. That's what Dharma is all about. And so you'll see today. I'm going to start teaching again. Right. Uh, without further ado, what I'd like to do is go directly into meditation. During the meditation itself, I'll simply read the final quotations from the Dzogchen Tantras by Padmasambhava. Simply read them. I don't think I'll comment on them during the meditation. But as I was contemplating this afternoon, I thought, oh, perhaps I can add something to make it clear and bring this to where we live. So I'll, I'll give some commentary afterwards. And then you may at your leisure, both you uh, listening by podcast, as well as you listening here in Phuket, then after you've received the commentary, then you may, if you wish, either use the podcast or record your own voice and give yourself the pointing out instructions all over again and see perhaps there's a little bit benefit, because that's the idea, you know, a bit of benefit. So please find a comfortable position, and we will conclude this chapter, this bardo, in Padmasambhava's Natural Liberation. For those listening by podcast, I imagine there was a rather long pause there. What we had here was a very heartfelt request, very simply put in traditional Buddhist terminology, for the wheel of Dharma to be turned, uh, that it continues to turn, that I continue to offer my best here and not offer a mere facsimile of the Dharma, which is also possible to do, and which I did last night, by the way. I'll return to that later. But for now, we will go to the meditation. We will conclude this chapter on the first bardo, the bardo of living. And so let us begin. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, in a spirit of loving kindness, and with an ambience of ease.
So once again, let your awareness come to rest. Without doing anything, without focusing on anything, without meditating on anything. But not spacing out, maintaining a clear and vivid sense of cognizance, a flow of knowing, the very knowing of knowing itself. Rest in your core, rest in your home, the womb of your mind. So Padmasambhava cites another Buddha source, the Vajra Array Compendium Sutra of Knowledge, states, the meaning of ultimate reality is none other than self-emergent, luminous, primordial consciousness. Do not seek out this precious wish-fulfilling jewel. You have it yourself. The all-accomplishing sovereign states, 
self-emergent primordial consciousness is self-emergent and arises without causes or conditions. It is unceasingly clear primordial consciousness. The essence, having no causes or conditions, has dominion over everything, and it does everything. And again from the all-accomplishing sovereign, with Samantrabhadra being the speaker, all phenomena are I. So if this nature of mine is known, all phenomena will be known. I am the all-accomplishing revealer, bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the all-accomplishing sovereign.
The Buddhas of the three times are created by bodhicitta. The sentient beings of the three realms are created by bodhicitta. The physical worlds and their sentient inhabitants are created by bodhicitta. The basis of samsara and nirvana and all happiness and suffering is none other than this present conscious awareness alone.
due to this being introduced by the Guru, the disciples, knowing their own nature, believing it, and coming to certainty, the foundation is liberated in its own place, right where it is. So these are the instructions on the transitional process of living, called the natural liberation of the foundation. Know this in that fashion. This has been the first chapter for accomplishing shamatha and being introduced to vipassana of the primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, samaya, sealed, sealed, Sealed. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Sarunasu. So I will go to provide some elucidation to this passage from Natural Liberation, but first a comment on the enigma of last night's so-called teaching. It was to illustrate a point, and it's a recurrent point. We've heard it a couple of times now. And that is if there's no information, there's nothing about which you're informed, and there's no one who is informed. Take away any of those three, and all three vanish simultaneously. Right? Which would immediately imply they couldn't possibly have inherent nature, their own intrinsic identity, if you take away one, and two other things simultaneously disappear. Good logic, isn't it? And likewise, if you're speaking to another person, there is now it's not just getting information by making a measurement, but you're having, having a conversation. Well, there's no conversation if there's not another person. It's called a soliloquy. But there's no conversation in this unless there is conversation, unless there is meaningful speech. But there's no conversation unless someone's speaking. Take away any one of those three, and the other two vanish within that context. Well, in exactly the same way, I'm speaking now in the context of Dzogchen, or we can speak more broadly in the context of Buddha Dhamma. And we can speak more specifically in the context of this retreat here. We all made an agreement at the beginning, as I recall, or I recall very vividly, actually, that we would homogeneously, at all times, with everyone here, conduct ourselves with courtesy and respect. That was the Samaya. And in this regard, it's completely symmetrical. Right? There's no difference. That is, I don't get off as the instructor. I don't get some special caveat. Oh, you're instructor, then you're special. You can be disrespectful. You can be discourteous. Uh-uh. No, not my book. Right? No, equally. No difference. Everyone here. And towards everyone around us. Even the animals as we save the snails, save the worms struggling on the, on the sidewalk and so forth. With courtesy and respect. I think you don't want to be there. I think I know where you want to go. I can help out. Good. That's courtesy and respect for an earthworm. Good idea. We may be one one day. <laughs> be kind to your four-footed friend. Remember that? So, take away one component and then the whole system collapses. Right? We can look at the Buddha Dhamma. Now again, I'm going to repeat. What do we need? What is, what is called for from our side? If we're going to fruitfully venture onto this path of the Buddha Dhamma. And only three things. We don't have to already have faith before we come. The Buddha never demanded that. He never said, oh, you have to have faith in me first, then I'll teach you. He never said that. Never said that. Some teachers do, that's okay. But the Buddha didn't. But three, three, three things, as we know from Arya Deva. You must be perceptive. Be awake, be alert, be attentive. Use your full intelligence. Don't hold anything back. That's one. To the best of your ability, be without prejudice, without bias, without closed-mindedness. And thirdly, having the passionate yearning, sincere, heartfelt yearning, to put the teachings into practice. If you investigate them, you find, find them sound, that you don't simply leave them as some intellectual knowledge, some 
mental baggage that you've just picked up, some data, put it into the practice. Put it into practice. That's all this calls for. Now when we move into this realm, this more specific realm of Dzogchen, unlike many other teachings, this is Vajrayana. This is the pinnacle of Vajrayana. It's authentically taught only when it's taught by a lama. We have no choice. I have no choice, as I mentioned before. Sometimes I think I dodged that a little bit, because Gyatru Rinpoche authorized me to teach Dzogchen and authorized me to teach this text about 20 years ago. And one of you today reminded me that for quite some years I would dodge the epithet, dodge the title Lama. I said, no, 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 I'm a spiritual friend, Kalyanamitra. Kalyanamitra, I'm a spiritual friend. Did, no, I'm not a Lama, I'm not a Guru. Lama is simply Tibetan for a Guru. Why? I thought about that. I think I'm quite clear now. I can tell you, when I think of Guru, I think of Guru Shakyamuni. That's what first, I say, Guru, Guru Shakyamuni. I shouldn't have the same title as Buddha Shakyamuni. You know. How can I have that title when it's the title of Nagarjuna, a Sangha? Shantideva, Atisha, Guru Rinpoche. How can I have the same title? How can you call a match by the same name as the sun? I felt, no, no. Not that. I'll be a spiritual friend. That's okay. And then there's Lama. Lama. I think Lama, of course. I think what? I think Dalai Lama. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Same thing. Dalai Lama. We think Gyawa Kamaba, Dujong Rinpoche, Sakya Tizen Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche. These are Lamas. How can I have the same name as these? And by the way, Lama is Tibetan. I'm not Tibetan. But how can I have the same title as the Dalai Lama? That's, again, it seems like, oh, I'm sorry, but the difference is too big. The meaning of the terms is interesting. Guru. Guru means heavy. It's the opposite of lagu. Lagu means light. Guru, lagu. You can't have one without the other, right? It's one of those same things all over again, left and right, up and down, guru-lagu, guru-lagu. Light, heavy, light, heavy. Heavy in what? Heavy in wisdom, heavy in virtue, heavy in compassion. That's why a guru is called guru, etymology. Yeah? Really emphasizes the wisdom, the knowledge, the skill. And then lama, it's a sweet word. It sounds nice, lama, it just rolls right off the tongue. La, ma, la, ma. La means... Supreme. Ma means mother. Mama means mother. So supreme mother. What's a mother's job? Take care of her children. Make sure they grow up well, that they're well and that they flourish, that they're well prepared for the world. That's a mother's job. So the supreme mother is one who takes care of her children. The supreme mother leads them on the path to their true flourishing, to awakening itself. So I felt quite shy about all of that. But then, I'm carrying the lineage, as so many people are, the lineage of Guru Shakyamuni and Nagarjuna, all these great beings, the light that they've shone, the current that they've passed on, that's been passed to me, 
I pass it on. They've passed away, I shall pass away. But it's the Dharma that is our refuge, right? People come and go, individuals come and go. But it is the Dharma that is our refuge. And so out of reverence for the lineages that I've, been, that I've received, that I've been authorized, encouraged to pass on, and with the awareness that it's although very faulty, much to be learned, much progress to be made, I think I can say to myself, looking in the mirror, I am trying my best. I'm not taking it casually to try to live in accordance with the teachings that I share. If I'm not, then of course I'd stop. So in that regard, Lama, Guru, for those who wish to look me in that way, then I will not say, oh no, you can't. You know, why would I do that? It's not fair. But for a person to be a Lama, they must teach. If you're, not, if you're not teaching, then you're a yogi. Right? You're a yogi. That's fine. Yogis don't have to teach. They just have to yog. <laughs> you know? But a Lama has to teach. You can't be a Lama. You can't be a Supreme Mother if you have no children, if you're not taking care of your children, if you're not caring for others. Then you're not a Lama. And then if you're not teaching, then you're not a lama. There's, there's no transmission, there's not a lama. But if you don't have disciples who look upon you as a lama, then, then that's like being a dentist with nobody coming to get their teeth fixed. You may have the all equipment, you may have the knowledge, but if nobody's coming to have their teeth fixed, either because they don't know you're there, or they don't trust you, or they just like having rotten teeth, then you're not a dentist, are you? You're a, a potential dentist. But you're not a dentist if nobody's coming to have their teeth fixed. Now, I had some interesting conversations today. Quite a number of them. They were all, they were all good. One of them was the issue of hierarchy. Hierarchy. I'm a born American. My family has been in America, I think, for oh, since the, well, quite a few generations. In California alone for five generations. And we didn't, we weren't, didn't start there. So I'm American. That is, the family's been there. So, the, all I'm saying there is, American, you know, we don't have any your holinesses. We don't have any mm, your royal highness. We have Mr. President. That's as good as it gets. I've got a better title than that. Mine, I'm Dr. B. Allen Wallace. He's only Mr., you know. So this is America. It's all egalitarian. We don't want a king or a queen. We have nothing against them, but we just don't want them. The sense, the ideal, which, which of course gets fractured many times, but the ideal that we all have the same potential, in that theistic sense, all men, are men, and they might mention women too, are created equal, that we should have equal opportunities. Quite a noble ideal. It's one I believe in. But I'm coming from a background. Also, Protestant background doesn't have pope, doesn't have any infallible source of knowledge, doesn't have a school of cardinals, doesn't have archbishops and bishops and priests and brothers, and doesn't have that whole hierarchy of Roman Catholicism. I have nothing against it at all. But I wasn't raised in that tradition, so I got it from both sides. And that is, you know, American, Protestant. So myself, also, just as a human being, this American guy, you know, hierarchy doesn't really work for me all that much. So when I started living with Tibetans in 1971, boy, did I get a quick, quick 
how do you say, primer. There's lots of hierarchy in Tibetan Buddhism. Just to learn how to write letters in Tibetan, you have to know when you you have to know when you're addressing the person how many can. Can means wise. How many can do you put after the person's name? It may be six, it may be five, four, three, two, one, depending exactly on where this person fits into the whole hierarchy. And you need to know that, otherwise you're kind of illiterate. You know, you can show your country bumpkin. And then, do you get a holiness or only merely a, his eminence? Are you a kapche or are you... How many titles do you get? Can you get a tuku and rinpoche? Do you have to get an eminence tuku rinpoche? Can you be jetsun tuku eminence rinpoche? Toko, monk, mm, head of an order, His Holiness. You know, how many? And I just, it just after a while, I get, just, uh, you know, you're just my lama. I just revere you as my lama. You know, that's enough. So, are we bringing this whole kind of baggage of hierarchy upon hierarchy? I would suggest in the following way that I feel very content with. I feel as an American, just now really speaking, essentially being American, right? We started out with symmetry, right? Courtesy and respect. From me, if I violate it, you call it on me in a courteous and respectful way, but you call it, right? Share your thoughts, honest, straightforward, courteously and respectfully. No holds barred, say whatever you like, right? And likewise, the other side. We want to speak your mind? Fine but do so with courtesy and respect, no fault, no fault. So there is symmetrical, complete symmetry. But then there is this mid-range that is not symmetrical. And that is, when all is said and done, I didn't come here, I didn't pay to come here, and I didn't come here to learn from you. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to learn from you, I already have learned from you. I hope to learn more, we have now still a half of a retreat to go. But that's not what I came. I hope I can learn a lot from those people. I hope I can get a lot from those people. That's not why I came here. I came here to be of service. You came here, if you can be of some service, that's really great. But if you came here primarily to be of service, I would ask, why? Why? Didn't you, uh, didn't you come here to learn Dzogchen, to learn the practice of these three bardos? So now there's an asymmetry. And in the context of Dzogchen, if it's authentic, I'm not going to teach it inauthentically, at least not voluntarily. It's a good disciple relationship. That's not a symmetrical relationship. But I'll say this emphatically, and it is the statement of the entire tradition. If you ask when a guru disciple relationship is established, who is it for? It's a simple question. Who is it for? And there's only one right answer, and that answer is emphatic. It's for the sake of the disciple. It's not 90-10, it's not 80-20, it's not 50-50, it's not 99-1. It's 100% for the sake of the disciple. That's it. That's asymmetrical. It's 0 to 100. It's not for the sake of the guru. So that's an asymmetry. Right. I think of guru and lama. Guru, I'm just going to say, highlights the epistemic aspect. If the guru doesn't know anything more than you do about the topic in question, Dzogchen or Bodhicharvatada or Shamatha, whatever, 
if the guru doesn't know anything more than the disciple, there's no point. Right? It's silly. Stop right there. Get off the train. Right? If there's no greater knowledge or experience, insight, realization, there's no reason whatsoever to view somebody else as your guru for anything. That's one element. But then Lama, Lama, the Supreme Mother, that suggests more the pragmatic aspect. And that is the guru, the Lama, is here to help you, not simply to inform you, give you more knowledge, insight, understanding. This is Dzogchen, this is the view, this is the meditation, this is the way of life. That's all very well, that's epistemic. The, Lama, the guru should know more about those than you do if teaching Dzogchen. Otherwise, again, what's the point? But it's not just a transmission of knowledge, a download of information. It's providing practical guidance. That's called upadesha, menak, pith instructions, practical instructions, guidance. And if the Lama is not more capable than you are of guiding you along the path of Dzogchen, the same question comes, what's the point? If you think you can guide yourself as well or better, if you think you can guide other people as well or better than another individual, it may be true. Why not? But then don't go to a person who is less capable than yourself. You're wasting your time, wasting that person's time. So we see this relationship. No, no disciples, no lama. No transmission, no lama or disciples. You can't be a disciple if you're not learning anything. So once again, it seems like they're all mutually interdependent and each one must be empty of inherent nature. Because you can't be a Lama all on your own. You can't be a Dzogchen disciple, a student all on your own. And there's no such thing as Dzogchen just kind of hovering in the air all by itself, waiting to be snatched out of thin air. So I have to say in all candor, I still don't feel all that comfortable with, the, with respect to myself with titles like Lama, or call it what you like, title, epithet, Lama, Guru. I mentioned when I was with Gantin Tukurumbache, when we were, just before he came on and spoke with everybody, he said, Alan, what's your title? I said, I'm just Alan. Said, what's your title? Okay, well, I have a PhD. I'm a doctor. Okay. And then it moved from there. It got to be kind of Dr. Lama Wallace, Dr. Lama Alan, because somebody from the audience, from the group said, Lama Alan. And then Gantin Tugarumaji immediately picked up on that. So I got now two titles, Dr. Lama. Ah, I'm getting up there in the world. Maybe his, his eminence is only around the corner. In jest, in jest. But we need this in English. You know, the, the Indians, when they say guru, guru, it's like saying acha. You know, it's like saying dal. It's their language, you know, it feels home. And likewise, the Tibetans, when they say Lama, Lama, sit home, it's their own language. It feels totally natural. Why would it not? So they wouldn't have any second qualms. If a person is qualified, well-trained, has an experience, authorized by his or her Lama to take on that role, you wouldn't think, oh, no, I can't do it because you're higher than I, or I can't do it because I'm not as high as the Dalai Lama. They'd laugh their heads off. What do you think? There's only one Lama in the whole country? Only the Dalai Lama? Then we have to, okay, but yeah, come on, give, give us a break here. We've been using this word for a thousand years in India for, you know, long. Get, get a grip. You can be a Lama. That's me after on the same level as Dalai Lama. But you're still the same continuum, the same, the same lineage. But we need it as an, a Native American, a Native English speaker. I think we need to kind of bring it home to our own language, don't you? That we don't feel that, you know, 
we don't feel we're adopting some kind of alien title, even from a, a language I'm pretty fluent in, Tibetan, pretty fluent. So as, I've, I've, as a translator, I've reflected on this for a long time. I think there are two, two translations work very well. Neither one of it completely captures it. But they're close. A lama, a lama, or guru. A guru is a spiritual mentor. Spiritual mentor, mentor as in mind, as in information, as in knowledge, as in wisdom. Providing you with knowledge, wisdom, understanding, leading you to insight that can give you greater understanding, greater knowing of the nature of reality. But spiritual mentor, and that is specific type of knowing, a type of knowing that will be used as you put it into practice to purify your own mind. and to gradually set out on the path to awakening. Spiritual mentor is a pretty good translation. Spiritual as in the pursuit of genuine happiness, freedom, awakening, spiritual mentor. That's good. I feel comfortable with that. Am I a spiritual mentor? Oh yeah, for a lot of people actually. Quite a few, for a long time now. And I feel quite, oh, spiritual mentor, sure. That's not a problem. Spiritual mentor, sure. Even for my grandson, I'm a bit of a spiritual mentor. He asked me to teach him meditation. What am I going to do? Say, no, I'm your grandpa. I taught him meditation. You know? Five-minute session. That was enough for the while. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another nice one. Another nice one, spiritual guide. And that really highlights the pragmatic aspect. The pragmatic aspect. This is not simply knowledge, simply acquisition of insight, wisdom, and so forth. This is going someplace. This is a path. That's the fourth noble truth. It's a path. It's not simply practicing virtue, being a good person, being a better person. It's a path. It's a path of irreversible, profound, and meaningful transformation. And a spiritual guide is to help you find the path, and once upon the path, lead you on it so you don't fall off into what are called pitfalls, detours, bogs, getting mired down or straying off the track. The spiritual guides responsibility is to help you find the path and lead you on the path all the way to its culmination. And you may, like a, what do they call it, relay race, you may have, like, sometime with one guru, like with a baton, and the guitar, then the guru passes that baton to another and he takes you on the next leg of the journey, the next leg of the journey. That's happened for me. I had lamas who were absolutely my core lamas in the 70s, and then... Life moves on. I move on. They're moving on. They're still my lamas, but now another lama's taken up. Oh, here comes Alan. Okay, take him the next stage. You know, and now I've just found a new lama. So happy. You know, they haven't all you know passed away. So Gandhendugaramiji now, a lama of mine. So happy. He's actually younger than me. Very good. So now he's okay. He's taken the baton. Oh, this guy, this guy, Alan. Oh yeah, I mean uh, Doctor Lama Alan. He would like further guidance. Oh, good. Good, good. So I'm looking forward to receiving further guidance from him next winter. So those two. Now, the issue of faith, I know it's hard. If we found it easy, we would have stayed home. We would have stayed home as atheists, as Jews, as Christians, what have you. If faith came easy, why would we be here? We weren't born here, none of us. Maybe one or two, but most of us were not born as, Christ- as Buddhists. 
And so if we found faith easy, we probably wouldn't be here in the first place. We would have just stayed atheist or just stayed scientist, having faith in science, that this is the way, this will suffice, this alone will solve all of humanity's problems. This is the one way forward, science, technology. That's faith. It's faith. It's something simple. And there is a hierarchy here. There is an asymmetry. And that is if you go to a dentist. I've been to a dentist. I had teeth problems in uh, Scotland. So as, as soon as I came back, I actually had an appointment already before I got back. Then I had to have two of my teeth fixed. I don't really know much about teeth. Whether you know, I needed a crown, it needed. I didn't know. I can't even see my teeth. You know, I can see reflections, but I can see my tongue. That's as close as I get. So I don't know about teeth, but I know that I had a really jagged one and another one, a little cavity coming up. So I basically entrusted my mouth and all those little ivory things in it to the dentist. I said, you know, he's qualified, he's certified, been my dentist for some time, never let me down, uh, doesn't give me excruciating pain. So I took refuge in the dentist for my teeth. You know? For my health, I take refuge primarily in a traditional Tibetan doctor. That's where my faith is, my confidence in. It's health maintenance. A lot of confidence in her. She's very, very good. But of course, for other things, if I break my arm, I'm not going to go to her. I go to the obvious place. So these are taking refuge. This is trust. It's not blind, but they certainly know one heck of a lot more about teeth and the body than I do. And I'm not even interested in learning what they learn, what they already know. So I'm just happy to take, take refuge. But when it comes to taking refuge spiritually, it's more even than therapy. And therapists, many of them, perform a very valuable role. But taking on the role of a lama, Guru, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual guide, is something heavier. Guru, it's heavier. Because the responsibility here, as a number of you are very well aware of, is not simply to overcome some psychological problems and say, okay, I'm fine now. Or overcome some stress, or overcome some anxiety, or some, overcome some low self-esteem or post-traumatic distress disorder, or insomnia, or depression. They come and they go. But a spiritual mentor, a spiritual guide. The responsibility there, the path, is to free the mind of all mental afflictions, all obscurations, to bring us to freedom, to bring us to awakening. So that's a big responsibility. You know. That's the one of all the things, like trusting somebody with your investment portfolio, with your car, your car needs to be fixed, your teeth, your, your body, and so forth and so on. We take refuge all the time. But this is the big one. This is the big one. It's an existential taking of refuge. It's taking, it's, ta it's taking your mind stream. It's taking your Buddha nature. Saying, please, help me unveil it. Can I trust you? Are you qualified? Do you have an authentic path? So that's the type of faith or confidence needed. It shouldn't be given easily. But if it's not given, then you're on your own. And that's much more challenging than having a rotten tooth and trying to fix it yourself without having any dental training at all. A lot harder. We've had so many chances in the Buddhist worldview. We've had so many chances in how many past lives of figuring it out all by ourselves. How many chances do we need? You know, 
How much more of samsara do we need to roam around before we figure out maybe having a spiritual mentor, spiritual guide? Maybe that's crucial. don't really want to come back as a human being in the near future. I'm doing everything I can to avoid it, actually. But should that happen, there's only one thing that really I feel any dread about. Not having a spiritual friend, spiritual guide or mentor. That I dread. Let's read a little bit. Now let's go back to this commentary. I said I'd offer it tonight, so I will. Go back. We finished the chapter. Finished the first bardo. Finished the first of six. But as I was reflecting on them, meditating on them this afternoon, I thought, well, maybe a few points of clarification could be helpful. Yeah, the first one is not bad. The Vajra Ray Compendium Sutra of Knowledge, the meaning of Again, now if you're looking at it, you can see where I'm, I'm updating the translation. It's chitata. The meaning of ultimate reality is none other than self-emergent, luminous, primordial consciousness. I'm changing pretty much all of that. Self-emergent, luminous, primordial consciousness. In other words, dhammata, which is identical dhammadaptu, absolute space of phenomena, is none other than primordial consciousness. You've heard that. They're primordially non-dual. But why mention that again? Because you've heard it so many times. The next one, do not seek out this precious wish-fulfilling jewel. You have it yourself. Oh, that really rang bells when I read that. Really rang bells. Shandideva. Some verses still linger in my mind that I memorized decades ago. This basis of leisure is more is superior, superior to a wish-fulfilling jewel. Wish fulfilling jewel. They may have actually have existed, but that's not the real point. I mean, I actually think they did actually exist, but that's not the point. Don't have to believe it. But a wish fulfilling jewel, call it mythology, call it reality, whatever you like. But it's a jewel that if you find it and you polish it, you treat it with great respect and reverence, you can direct your thoughts to it, your wishes, and it will provide you with any mundane uh, desire, fulfill any mundane desire you, you, you have. Money, wealth, sex, fame, whatever, just outcomes. So quite magical, right? We have a lot of you know, fables and fairy tales and so forth along the similar vein. I'll give you three wishes, right? Um, but it said this, this basis of leisure, which is this fully endowed human life of leisure and opportunity, in which we have the health, the clarity of mind, and so forth, and then all of the inner requisites and all of the outer requisites, everything we need from outside in terms of spiritual friends, spiritual mentors, having enough to eat, and so forth. They really unpack this. Having the full possibility to devote oneself to, to the, the teachings of the Buddha, to follow the path. So this is, if you could either have such a body, such a life, with such leisure and opportunity, then that would be better than, more valuable, and not having that, and merely having a jewel that could make you wealthy and handsome and everything else mundane. And that's literally true. The other one will give you all the hedonic pleasure you could possibly hope for, and it will give you nothing eudaimonic. That's the limitation of the wish-fulfilling jewel. Nothing eudaimonic. Because you can't get that from outside in the first place. 
not from anything outside, right? And so with that in the background, when I was reading this, I thought, oh, but now what makes this wish, this, this basis of leisure, what makes it so precious? Is it the bones? Is it, the, is it our human intellect, our large frontal cortex? What is it that makes it more valuable than a wish-fulfilling jewel? Hmm. Well, of course, it's your Buddha nature. If you don't have your Buddha nature, then nothing else works. Nothing else matters. You can have the best teacher in the world, the best guru, the best health, the best intelligence. But if you don't have Buddha nature, then what do you got? You do not have the source of genuine happiness. And so that's what he's referring to. And he said, don't seek it out. Don't look where. We've heard this how many times now. It's so worthwhile hearing again. Do not look outside yourself for the Buddha. The primary cause is within, and everything else consists of cooperative conditions. The guru, texts, transmissions, empowerments, meditation centers, and so on and so on. Do not seek out, do not seek out this precious wish fulfilling jewel, you have it in yourself. Right? I'll just yeah, I don't need to read every verse. I've already given the transmission, but here just one on page one thirty nine. That essence having no causes or conditions has dominion over everything and it does everything. Now that's an amazing statement. It's a very large statement. It's an astonishing statement, utterly contrary to the flow of modernity. And that is this, this Buddha nature, this ground consciousness, pristine awareness. It has dominion over everything. That's a very large statement. This which is non-dual from absolute space of phenomena. So let's just hold that, that statement. It has dominion over, power over. One, has, one who has mastery over Buddha nature, who has thoroughly fathomed Buddha nature, who has fully tapped into its inner resources, has dominion over everything. That's an amazing, very large statement. If it's true, my goodness. But then referring to this I, me, as the personification of Samadhabhadra, he says, all phenomena are I. All phenomena are I, Samadhabhadra, the personification of pristine awareness. So this nature of mind is, if, if this nature of mind is known, if you know me, Samatavadra, your own pristine awareness, if you know that, all phenomena will be known. Oh, one enormous statement, once again. Enormous statement. Know the nature of your own pristine awareness, tap right down to the ground, and all things will become clear to you. Wow, what an incredible hypothesis. Is that true? I am the all-accomplishing revealer. I do everything. Referring again, of course, to the same. Referring now to his bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta is the all-accomplishing sovereign. All the Buddhas are created by bodhicitta, sentient beings created by sentient beings, all worlds created by, emerging from this pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. Ultimate bodhicitta. I might have missed this earlier. Knowing this nature of yourself, yeah, I did miss it. So now you get the transmission, just on the top of page 140. Knowing this nature of yourself, so not someone else, is labeled the Samantha, Samantha Bhattra basis of liberation. When this is present as ethically neutral, luminosity and emptiness, it is given the name Alaya, substrate. Alaya, substrate. There's a real key there. When you see this phrase, ethically neutral, luminosity and emptiness, 
The luminosity is substrate consciousness, right? And the emptiness is the substrate. It's given the name substrate. When? When it's present, when it crystallizes, when it manifests in this ethically neutral fashion as the mere bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality of a substrate, substrate consciousness, then that's the name by which it is known. Let's just read briefly the last one. The basis of samsara and nirvana and all happiness and suffering is none other than this present conscious awareness alone. Again, it's so easy to feel, to have the sense, boy, that primordial consciousness, that pristine awareness, I wish I had some of that. I, I wish I could find it. Where do I need to look? Well, I, know, I, I know, I'm supposed to look within. Yeah, but not this. This is ordinary. This is just consciousness. Where, where is the good one? The big, deep one, you know, the Buddha one. I've just got this ordinary one. Where's one that other people are getting? What I need to do to tap that deep? You already said don't seek it. But being introduced by the spiritual mentor, I'll say that word now, it's guru, lama, by, due to this being introduced by the spiritual mentor, the disciples or pupils know their own nature. They know for the first time who they are. Knowing that, believing that, that having, having conviction, and coming to certainty, the foundation, the alaya, is liberated in its own place. The alaya is liberated, it's freed, it's melted into dharmatatu, primordially free. So these are the instructions on the transitional process of living called the natural liberation of the alaya. That's why it starts out with shamatha, right? You don't get to the alaya unless you've achieved shamatha. It's not just liberating your mind, your ordinary mind. It's getting to the ground of your mind and then liberating that, cutting through that. So, I got my mojo back today, which means I have more notes. I plumb out for a couple of days. So I'll do something I love doing, and it's very short, we'll have dinner. But I really love doing this. And that is... We're talking in Dzogchen, Dzogchen, it seems like it's out there in outer space, so, so esoteric, so transcendent, so, so, so. Let's go back to the suttas, back to the Pali Canon, <coughs> and to the ever so familiar first verse in the first chapter of the Dhammapada. But now resonate with that. One who realizes that it has dominion over all phenomena, right? Dominion means power. You've mastered the, you're a master of the universe, you know? You'll know all phenomena. That's what it said. Know this awareness and you know all phenomena. And the Dhammapada states here, in these foundational teachings of the Buddha, all phenomena are preceded by the mind, issue forth from the mind and consist of the mind. That can be interpreted and is interpreted in multiple ways, which is only right. There's no one person to say this is the only right interpretation. One that is certainly not incongruent or, how do you say, at variance with the teachings of the Buddha and the Pali Canon or the Theravada tradition for that matter, is that all phenomena, phenomena again, bear in mind, these are not entities existing out there in some world independent of experience, but rather the, the appearances, the phenomena that arise in this lived world, what the Germans call Lebenswelt, it's a very good word, what this world that we are living in, this world of our experience, 
all the appearances, objective, subjective, sensory, mental, and so forth, all appearances are preceded by the mind. What mind? Here we are as human beings. He's speaking to human beings, right? So what mind is there prior to the emergence of all the appearances we experience in the dream state, when we wake up in the morning, throughout the course of the day, when we have hypnagogic imagery at the end of the day, just before we slip into deep sleep? What is, what mind precedes all of these, precedes all the appearances that an unborn baby in the womb is already having at some point, and I don't pretend to know when, but clearly at some point during that nine months, this, this, is this little child who's a, who's a passenger is having some experiences, right? I have no idea when. How would I know? But at some point, for sure. And so what preceded those first appearances? Maybe it's warm, maybe it's tight, maybe it's whatever it is. What, but experiences arising. said in the Kalachakra Tantra, during the last trimester, the, the unborn baby is, is having this vast cycling through past life recall. Memory, just, like, just only opening up a Rolodex, for anybody who can remember what a Rolodex is. <laughs> opening up your hard drive and just... It said in the Western tradition, that the unborn baby in the last trimester spends about, I think it's something like 90% of the time dreaming. Dreaming what? Dreaming past lives? Where? What mind preceded whatever appearances arising, sensory, mental, arising in the continuum of the unborn baby? What mind preceded all of that? There's only one candidate in the Pali Canon since there's no reference to Buddha nature or primordial consciousness, the substrate consciousness, what else? All these appearances are rising in the substrate. They're illuminated by the substrate consciousness, right? So all phenomena, all experiences of the unborn baby, all experiences when we slip into the dream, all experiences when we wake up from deep sleep, all experiences, all phenomena are preceded by the mind. They issue forth from the mind. They issue forth, those appearances issue forth from the space of the mind, the substrate, that's the hollow deck. That's the space in which all appearances are rising, including right now, including people, and you're very much in my mind, people listening by way of podcast. All the appearances of this voice. Where? Do you think it's coming from my lips? The sound? No way. Of course not. The sounds you're hearing are rising. Maybe you have headphones on. Where are those sounds occurring from? Where are they arising from? Where are they issuing forth from? Your own substrate consciousness. You're hearing yourself speak. And they consist of the mind. They're nothing more than effulgences, creative expressions of your substrate consciousness, right? The final one, we'll take a break. But that was good, solid Pali Canon, our foundation, our granite foundation. There you can rest. And then we move to the Mahayana. And there's a sutra called the Ratnamega Sutra, the Cloud of Jewels. The Cloud of Jewels Sutra, Mahayana Sutra. And here's what the Buddha says, states there. It will sound quite... Familiar. All phenomena are preceded by the mind. But now he continues. When the mind is comprehended, all phenomena are comprehended. By bringing the mind under control, all things are brought under control. Oh, we've just had a head-on collision with the 21st century. Because take that... 
all phenomena, all experiences. See how this sounds. All experiences are preceded by the brain. When the brain is comprehended, all experiences are comprehended. By bringing the brain under control, all things are brought under control. So these are not compatible statements. You say, oh, mind and brain, well, you know, tomatoes, tomatoes. No, 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 no. That's not true. That's not, they're not equivalent statements at all. They suggest radically different strategies. Right? Profoundly different. So if the other one, all experiences are preceded by the brain, if that's where the buck stops, we say in American English, if that's really the foundation, brain activity, then all of Buddhism is wrong, and Dzogchen is forget about it. Total fabrication. Total superstition. So, I'll move to this tomorrow, but I will not go into a mode of ridicule and I'll not mention any names of anybody I'm criticizing. Because I'm not criticizing people anyway. What's the point of that? People die, so I'm criticizing a dead person. What's the point of that? Why criticize Freud? He can't defend himself. He died in 1939. That's silly. Don't Don't critique dead people. But you can critique what they say, because what they say continues to have an influence, right? So I think from now on, I might have an exception, but I don't think so, at least no plan. When I take out an assertion, a hypothesis, that I will critique, I'm just going to critique the statement. And I'm not going to mention names, because it doesn't matter who said it. If something is a false premise, a false view, it doesn't matter who says it. People come and go, but false statement, they, that can go on influencing people for centuries. And there's just one person after another saying it and passing it on, passing it on. So delusion has no owner. If it's a false view, then demonstrate it it's a false view. Demonstrate it. Show it. That's how Buddhists do. Don't ridicule it. Don't just simply disparage it. If it's false, show why it's false. Or at least give your empirical evidence and your reasoning. That's, how, that's the Buddhist way. And you don't need to mention any names, because it doesn't matter who said it. And likewise, if it's a word of wisdom, when all is said and done, did you really care that much about which tantra was being quoted? Which tantra was that? Wait a minute, was that the all-accomplishing sovereign, or was that, you know? Do you really care whether it was Padmasambhava or Dujum Lingpa, or whether it was Longchamrachamba or Lidab Lingpa? If it's authentic Dzogchen teachings, kind of isn't that really what it's all about and everything else? What century did they teach? What was it named? Was it a man, a woman? Isn't that kind of like, well, whatever, maybe I'll get to that, but right now I'm so busy because I'm focusing on trying to understand and to put into practice. You know. So we'll bring that up tomorrow, but I think some... I'll critique that which, frankly, I find the critiques easy, like child's play. You know. uh, but then finding, do we find kindred souls... Kindred souls, people who are raising the same issues with profound insight, who have enormous expertise, very high intelligence, great authority for their disciplines. Do we find resonant voices across the chasm, across the centuries, across the disciplines, across the cultures, from Buddhist to modern science? Can we find areas where, of course, we disagree on some points, but of course, people disagree all over the place. But can we find places to join hands and say, ha, I think here's an area where we could learn from each other, why don't we focus on that and see where it takes us? And so I will briefly critique some statements. I'll not quote the person who made them, because it just doesn't matter. I will say, 
very high profile, very high profile medium in which it appeared. So it wasn't some arcane little silly th- statement that somebody made, but rather something very, very high profile. That's why I read BBC, New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and others, you know. That's why, because I, I want to know what people are believing. Not so that, that I know what's happening in the world, but rather what people think is happening in the world. And what's the common coinage? What are the views out there that are widely accepted? So that we know, as we're bringing Buddhism in the 21st century, we're not bringing it into a primitive, uneducated, naive, and unsophisticated culture, a culture of modernity. We're bringing it into a very rich jungle, all kinds of things already here. Right? Philosophy, science, multiple religions, multiple sciences, multiple interpretations of science, and so on. And so once again, we won't be here in this cloistered retreat center for very long. We'll be returning to our world, world outside, so that we come back and whatever we received here, it will be as seamless as possible. And if people ask you about what were the theories you learned, what were the practices you engaged in, well, happily, thanks to Gautrinabhuchi, you don't have to say, I'm sorry, but it's secret. It's, it's Okchen. We can't talk about that. Sorry. You, you don't have to do that, right? I mean, it's going over the podcast, for heaven's sake. Right? So you can talk as you wish. But then when people say, but, but how can that be? Maybe you talk about Rikpa, but how can that be? You, you talk about resting, your ne- resting awareness in its, own, in its own nature, and perhaps you cite some of these. But how can it be? But, but, but these people say this, and I, but, but I believe this, and so forth. Can you have a mutually respectful conversation and speak in the 21st century as a well-informed, educated person that, yes, I, my views do not go along with the very common materialistic views that dominate so much of modern life. They don't. But that's not because I'm unintelligent or uneducated or haven't thought things through. But in fact, here's where I stand, and this is why I stand here, and this is why, if you feel so, it's your, your choice, of course, it's always your choice. And this is where I de- disagree on this point, but I find this very helpful for modern science, its context, and so forth. So that we can have this seamless transition and feel at home, at rest, at ease in our worldview, our meditation, our way of life, even as we venture out into a world where the predominant worldviews are not so much Dzogchen and the priorities are not so much Dzogchen meditation. And the way of life is not so much Dzogchen way of life either. But you can go there and feel at ease. And if anybody challenges you, you can respond. Not in combat, but you can respond at ease, having thought these three things through, and be able to cite noble sources, eminent sources from the West, say, well, for example, he also made this comment, and you can cite somebody if you wish, and have a meaningful conversation. And I think that will be a very meaningful service to those around you. For some of you, as soon as you go home, there may may be nobody in your home that gets what you're doing, sympathize with what you're doing. It's just incomprehensible to them. And if something is incomprehensible, you can't can't respect it. Why would you respect something you can't fathom at all? And so for your loved ones to be able to come back and speak intelligibly, not to persuade them, we're not on an evangelical crusade here, but if people sincerely come to you and they're trying to understand what's your practice, then you can share with them in an intelligible way that is fully engaged with the 21st century. And whether they take any further interest, you will have done them a service to broaden their perspective. Because even in this 21st century, it's very easy to be provincial, to hang out with only people who share your views, 
Buddhists do it all the time, hanging out with only Buddhists, like in, you know, in Asia. They're just surrounded by people who hold similar views, so then how do they know anything else, right? And people in modernity, it happens ever so often in academia, uh, ever so often, in science as well. You're surrounded by people who have very similar views. You're never challenged. I've known so many, I know so many neuroscientists and so forth that say I'm a materialist, but I never heard of anything else when I got all my education. It was like, but it wasn't even called materialism, it was called neuroscience. It was called whatever they're studying. It was called medicine. And we never told it was materialistic. We were just told, here's how you get a medical degree. Here's how you get a PhD in neuroscience. Here's how you get this and that. I know. And we never, so I'm a materialist because I never heard of anything outside that. So maybe we can help people broaden their horizons. And even if they don't agree with us, that's, that's okay. But if at least we can say something intelligible that's well-informed and intelligent, that would be a service. We all feel at ease get on with our practice. Oh yeah. So, we're finished. And what I'd like to do tonight is something just turned out that way, and I can take responsibility for it. I'm actually in charge of the retreat, so I do. But something didn't quite happen as much this retreat as has happened to all the preceding ones. And that is a sense of real community. You know, everybody knows everybody's name, you've all gotten to know each other. Uh, and that comes about in two ways. Having a couple more days at the beginning, just for you know, socializing, talking over dinner and so forth and so on, but also something that didn't happen. I'm responsible, only. I'm the only one responsible, because you voted on that one, so you get the one for that. But uh, the fact that since then, we've not really had that much time for discussion. I kind of get, you know, I, I've caught a wave, I'm riding my wave, and it tends to last even longer than 6 o'clock, as it did again tonight, and kind of carried up by the wave of enthusiasm, kind of, well, wave of, it is a wave, something that I'm just catching. I'm writing. But that means something, and I hope that was useful. I think it was for some people. But then what didn't happen is we didn't have, I wasn't calling people by name a lot. And, and then you're hearing each other's voices by name and getting to know what are your interests, your qualms, your issues coming up in meditation and so forth. So that hasn't happened. Well, it will. It will. But we'll try to do a little bit of a catch-up tonight. Okay? And that is, dinner hopefully is still warm. And uh, so we'll go off to dinner, and I'm inviting you now, um, join us for dinner. I'm going to head off, because I've been talking a lot already, so I'm going to go off on my walk. But please gather for dinner, and please do not came, keep silent. Not tonight. You can have silence tomorrow morning. But tonight, please engage with your brothers and sisters, your Dharma family here. Talk about whatever you like. I have no script for you. But maybe a bit of catch-up time just to get to know each other a bit better. I think now's a good time for that. And as long as you like, if you'd like to have a leisurely dinner that goes on until, until they kick you out, you know, that's fine. No time limit. Take your time. Enjoy each other's company. And I'll see you tomorrow morning. And thank you for your lovely offer. I will do my best to turn the wheel of Dharma without letting my words be influenced by my own mental afflictions. Try to be of service in the most effective way I can. And since my, pa my passion is to find and follow the path myself, that is my motivation and will continue to be my motivation for sharing the Dharma with you. Not to give you simply some views and some practices, but really to be a spiritual guide and help you find the path and take you as far along on that path as I can 
And if at any time, whether it's four weeks from now or 40 years from now or four lifetimes from now, when it comes time to pass the baton and some other spiritual guide comes into your life, rejoice, take delight in that. We're all working together. Okay? Enjoy your dinner, a dinner together. See you tomorrow morning.